Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. We've been very excited about the, the work of these, um, these artists for a very, very long time, and um, you'll soon see why. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Anders Nilsson. Hello, everybody. Thank you for coming out. Um, so, it helps if I can be heard. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit from uh, my this book, Rage of Poseidon. Um, the book is a little, if you're familiar with my work, it's a little bit unlike what I usually do. Um, and it actually started out as a slideshow, so you guys are sort of seeing the original uh, intended version of this work. Um, I had a, I have a friend in Chicago who's a novelist and I had done some illustrations for a collection of short stories that he did. And he asked me to do um, a reading when the book came out or when it went into paperback. Um, and I've always found that reading comics to an audience is a little weird. <laughs> <coughs> You know, the audience is reading the word balloons as you're reading them, and like, my comics are very quiet, so there were long passages where I'm just clicking through. Um, so I decided I wanted to come up with something for this reading that would be uh, more conducive to the actual medium of showing images to an audience and reading. Um, so I had these kind of like little short stories um, half constructed in my sketchbooks um, in a totally different form and I sort of realized that there were several of them that kind of dealt with this theme of um, mythology and religion and sort of bringing old stories into uh, the present day and tweaking them and playing around with their weird implications. Um, and the Silhouette images that you're going to see are basically a function of um, not having a lot of time to get ready for that reading. Um, laziness is often a very helpful uh, spur for me in my creative endeavors. Um, but then they sort of turned out to have their own interesting odd power. So um, I'm going to read three pieces um, and then turn it over to Michael. So imagine you are Poseidon, god of the sea. <clears throat> 
It's been two, maybe 3,000 years since you chased Odysseus all over the Mediterranean, trying to punish him for the murder of your one-eyed son, the Cyclops. Not that you even really cared that much about the Cyclops. He wasn't much of a son. You hadn't ever really gotten along with him that well. He lived in a cave and herded sheep. He was kind of stupid, actually. You could never even remember his mother's name, not that it mattered, she was mortal. But it was the principle of the thing. They'd gone into his home, killed him, taken his herd. He was your son, and you were a god. But your efforts hadn't worked out very well. The so-called goddess of wisdom had some sort of weird crush on Odysseus. She used her sniveling lapdog Hermes and a bunch of bullshit sneaking around to get the man home, <laughs> alive. Yeah, his entire crew was killed. His ship was destroyed. He was stranded and corrupted for years. But he made it home, alive, to his wife and his son and his dog. It was then that the decline began. It was slow, almost imperceptible at first. But looking back, that was the fatal moment. Sailors started straying further and further afield. Over time, they found new lands, encountered the children of other gods. They made sacrifices to you less and less, and the quality of the sacrifices declined. The animals they offered up were, more and more, the crippled ones, the old and decrepit ones. They saved the better meat for themselves. They started relying on maps and peculiar devices of navigation and building bigger boats. And so time went by. Unneeded, you were lost, and you drifted apart. To this day, you don't know what happened to all of the gods. Some, you've heard, are dead. Bacchus apparently runs a nightclub in a new city on the other side of the world called Las Vegas. Apparently, he's been involved in the invention and spread of an ever-expanding plethora of new intoxicants. According to rumor, he's partnered with Mars, who, of all of you, never lacked for devotees. Venus works in a place called Hollywood, Eros runs something called the internet. Only Hades' vocation remains unchanged. He still presides, undisturbed, over the dead in his dismal caves. But the truth is, the decline hasn't been all bad. You'd always had a solitary disposition, and let's be honest, the constant interventions, saving ships, calling off, calling off hungry sharks, all the piddling bullshit, it wore on you. Indeed, it may be that you took to the lack of responsibilities, if anything, too well. You could entertain yourself for whole decades just orchestrating the tides, punctuated with the stirring of the occasional hurricane, the occasional tsunami, the intricacies of undersea ocean currents kept you occupied for almost the entire British Empire. But then the oceans began dying. One day in a far corner you discovered a massive floating island of garbage. There were more not far away. There were also giant lifeless areas the size of a small country filled with slime. There were vast cities of coral reduced to dry bone and the fish were almost gone. It was slow at first, then beyond repair before you knew it. Swallowing your distaste of the surface, you've taken to wandering among the mortals in disguise, trying to understand. It's been fascinating. They are pathetic and loathsome in a way, but strangely sweet and endearing at the same time, like the larvae of eels. You've been wandering lately in a land called America, in a country called Wisconsin. 
It's very strange. But the citizens are good people. They've invented a wonderful libation they call iced latte. It's second only to the divine ambrosia of Olympus. You can't get enough. It's summer and you find yourself in a city where citizens of the surrounding provinces come to recreate. The people are all dressed in garish, bright colors and never seem to stop moving or talking. You walk among them, taking it all in. These are the beings that supplanted us, you think, that cast us aside as casually as a wolf spits out the bones of a rabbit. Your mind reels at the thought. It's horrifying in a way, humiliating. Yet despite the horror, you find that you are smiling to yourself. It's funny, you think. It's actually funny. You shake your head and take another sip from the thin plastic tube protruding from your cup. It's not our problem anymore. It's their world now. A barely noticed but long-held tension lifts from your shoulders. And then you see something that stops you in your tracks. There, across the road, is a gigantic complex of colorful tubes twisting and winding down through the air before emptying into man-made pools of weirdly electric blue water. Human children scream and giggle, sliding through the tubes and splashing into the pools. A giant billboard presides over the whole mad scene, giving it a name in six-foot-tall neon. Rage of Poseidon Water Park. <laughs> the hair on the back of your neck stands up. The plastic cup falls from your hand. Your human form trembles slightly. Your face flushes red. It takes a few weeks to track down your brother, Jupiter, another couple of days after that to sober him up. But he agrees to your request, even if only to, go, to get you to go away and leave him alone. The next day and for a week after that, a conflagration of hurricane force winds and gales of lightning raises everything for a hundred miles to a smoking ruin. Nothing is spared. Afterward, you drift down a swollen river slowly out to the sea. You feel more alive than you have in a thousand years. So imagine your name, your name is Isaac, and you are standing on a mountaintop with your dad. You've just helped him build a pile of sticks to make a fire. Usually you do this sort of thing to burn up a lamb or a goat. Your dad is real religious. He thinks God likes the smell of meat cooking, which is reasonable, right? Who doesn't? But it also seems like kind of a waste. Your family's farm does okay, but it can be a struggle. And you could always use a couple of extra bucks for video game cartridges. So you ask him, where's the animal? What are we going to burn? He doesn't look at you. He says, God will provide. And then he starts tying you up. Your dad has always been different from your friend's dad's. <laughs> He's older for one thing, a lot older. And he and your mom have always been really good to you. They'd been unable to have kids for a whole lifetime before you came along, so they kind of worship you, to the point where it's kind of embarrassing sometimes. So what your dad's doing now is weird. In fact, he seemed sort of distant for almost a week. The rope cuts into your arm. It hurts. You ask him what's happening. He starts to say something, then stops and rubs his eyes. Then he lifts you up onto the stacked wood and takes out his knife. You ask again, louder this time. All of a sudden, you realize there are tears running down his face. Dad, you say. Dad. He pushes your head back, exposing your neck. 
He brushes your hair out of the way. I'm sorry, Isaac, he says, almost choking on the words. He puts the blade to your neck. You close your eyes. There's a loud noise. A man appears and grabs your dad's hand. He's the most beautiful person you've ever seen. They talk for a minute. You don't understand most of it. But once the man leaves, your dad unties you. A wild ram walks out of the brush just then and doesn't resist at all when your dad tells you to tie it up. You cut its throat. Your dad says the usual prayers. And you light it up just like normal. And that's it. On the way home, your dad lets you choose a new game cartridge from one of the vendors at the market. <laughs> you choose Exodus 6, The Reckoning. <laughs> it's a first-person shooter game where you have to escape slavery in Egypt. While playing it that night after dinner, you notice your dad watching you from the kitchen. He comes and sits next to you on the couch, watching the screen as you blow away Egyptians and race to the sea. All thanks be to the Lord Isaac, he says. He puts his arm around you. I know, Dad, you say, which is what you always say. But for the first time, you think you know what he means. So one more short one here. <clears throat> so Jesus and Aphrodite, goddess of love. You breathe that so Jesus and Aphrodite, goddess of love, meet up at a bar in heaven, and Jesus tries to pick her up. He's like, we were made for each other. <laughs> and she thinks about it for a minute. The virgin birth versus rising out of the sea foam, sacrificing oneself for all humanity, walking on water. And she says, does it bother you that I'm married to the god of war? Jesus looks into her soft green eyes. He puts his hand on her hair. The god of war works for me now. Me and my dad run this whole place. There's nothing he could do even if he knew. A shiver of excitement mingled with fear tickles the back of her neck, and the goddess of love and the son of God finish their drinks and stumble out to his pickup together, laughing. Having a good time? <laughs> Having a good time, right? Right, you can't get this on Amazon, let me tell you that much. You can't get this on Amazon. So um, just to also announce to make sure that you know that uh, books are available, you know, uh, so you can get them freely right up there. What's gonna happen is that uh, um, uh, we're gonna do a Q&A after Michael presents, and then we'll take all this stuff down, and we'll put out a table, um, and they can sign away. All right, and one of the things we ask is that uh, you buy the books first before you get them signed, and that you, uh, yes, seriously, I've been doing this for a long time. People just like, you know, oh, thank you so much, sign and then leave. You know, it's like, oh no, 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 it doesn't work like that. And so once you buy your book, okay, you're going to line up right against here, travel, travel, foreign language, right here on this side, and get your book signed, okay? Did I vamp long enough just so you can get ready? Okay, good. See, it was seamless, wasn't it? Seamless. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, Michael, the floor. Thank you. Uh, thanks for coming. Thanks to the store for hosting me. Um, so the book I'm launching today is uh, a book called Ant Colony. And um, I was going to talk about the book or read from it. But um, similarly to what Anders was talking about, there's kind of an awkwardness to reading from 
comics, and uh, there's very little intonation in my voice. And uh, so differentiating dialogue between characters would always be kind of a pain. Um, so instead, you get to hear, it's, I'm still going to be as monotonous, but I'll talk about, um, I thought I'd talk about comics I've abandoned over the past uh, five or six years. Um, works in progress I've thrown out midway through. Um, Talking with other cartoonists and artists, not, not, not to brag, I talk with a lot of artists, right? And um, there, I, a lot of them have sort of felt similarly, uh, similarly to me, when they give up a comic, it, uh, it feels really good. Um, or a piece of music, or, or something they're writing, or an installation, any, whatever. It's something that takes a long time to do. It's really liberating to throw out um, working on something and giving yourself a bunch of rules and things you set out to do and kind of feels limiting and it feels like you're building this shitty prison. And uh, for me personally, it feels much more satisfying to throw something out than it has or, uh, ever has finishing something. Um, because when you throw something out, you just have potential and momentum to start something new. And when you finish something, you just have all these second guesses and you've been sick of drawing a character with like the same nose over and over again. <laughs> Um, so yeah, this opening image uh, actually doesn't have a lot to do with what I'm talking about. It just felt like an okay opening image. It was the cover for what was going to be a digest collecting issues one and two of a series I draw called Lose. Um, but I don't like issue one anymore, so uh, it didn't get printed. And I didn't finish coloring it. Um, so it's also weird to talk a little bit about this because uh, when I throw my work out, I throw out most traces of it. Um, so I throw out the pencils and my, uh, the print-ready kind of inked files and any kind of JPEGs I might have. Um, so I actually had to find a lot of these images through uh, Google image searches and that um, like web archive thing that like archives all the parts of your website, which is also very disconcerting to know exists. Um, so I can't go through it chronologically like I intended. Um, so I'm going to start over here. Um, this was uh, the, uh, the opening page for what was going to be the lead story in Lose Number 3. Uh, it was called Someone I Know, which is a title I took from a Margot Gurian song and then recycled for a comic later. Um, yeah, it, it was about, um, it was about a, a sitcom writer who has a relationship with a young model uh, who also had a beak, apparently. and, and um, I wanted to write about working relationships between artists and um, romantic relationships between artists, which is something I've tried to come back to a few times. Um, so yeah, I gave this up uh, around the same time I gave up a comic that this was the opening page of. And this, I wish I had more pages from this maybe only for the purpose of this slideshow, but because <laughs> it, it's a very undescriptive page. But this was called... Uh, the Seed Stirs, and I drew 35 pages of it, and it was going to be a graphic novel that took place in a post-apocalypse, and it was about a, um, a father and son just kind of navigating that landscape, which is also something I reused a little bit for what ended up becoming the main story in Lose Number 3. Uh, so for these two comics, um, I gave them up around the same time, and I was a little worried about the fact, you know, it felt good to do it, but I was a little worried, like, oh, I just threw out, like, 50 pages of work. Um, and I was sort of wondering why, and was like, well, this maybe shouldn't be a good habit to get into, like, constantly tossing out stuff. Um, and I have gotten into that habit since. Um, but uh, 
I was kind of wondering what my problem was, I guess. And I was concerned, like, maybe, maybe I only want to write short stories and I should just be a short story specialist, um, which would be fine, but I was, wasn't sure if that's what I wanted to do yet. And so for this comic in particular, um, I, I was showing it to a few friends at the time, which is something I do a lot less of now. And uh, I showed it to my publisher, uh, Ann Koyama, and my friend Ryan Sands, and a girl I was seeing at the time. Um, and I was asking for their opinions a lot. I had written this whole script out, and as each, I inked each page, I would send it over to them and sort of ask what they thought of it. And yeah, before and since then, I was never really that concerned about that. When I ask for advice from uh, friends or peers, I'm usually more worried about things like structure or dialogue, if, if something like a joke is funny or not. And uh, for this, it really mattered to me that they all hated the comic, and they all really like hated it. And they were kind of polite about it, but they would sort of be like, oh, like this is interesting, like, oh, it's a departure from what you're doing. Um, <laughs> So they're like, you know, uh, yeah, they were cool about it. But, um, and incidentally, they were right. It was like a really bad comic, but that wasn't really what bothered me because I, you know, I've drawn bad comics before and after, and you just, I kind of chalk it up to like, oh, you know, you need some shitty comics. Um, everyone needs a few. And, um, but it, I guess what I realized, my problem was that I had lost interest in it. And, because uh, I'd written so many things out in advance. I had lost interest in what I was doing, and I was requiring other people around me to just sort of like reaffirm what I'm like, oh, like this is still worth, you know, keep at it, buddy. Um, <laughs> and that was kind of a problem that like I needed that. Um, so I, yeah, I guess this is when I realized I had a problem. Um, this is just another page from the issue, a story I threw out. Um, uh, so that idea of uh, writing about art, uh, relationships between artists um, carried over into this series called Open Country. Uh, here's another image from it and uh, the cover to issue two. Um, so this was a comic I drew two issues of and then, or I, I printed two issues of and then I drew a third issue and penciled four and five. And um, as soon as I finished issue three, uh, I was about to send it to the printer and decided I just didn't like the story anymore. Uh, so I threw out all the pages I was going to send to the printer and the sketchbooks that I had plotted out the other issues in and then destroyed all the physical copies of issues one and two. So this was actually very difficult for me to find pages of. I had to find like review reviews of it online. And um, yeah, the story with this was, it was about um, a group of artists who uh, had the ability to project psychic images of themselves, and they would use those images to make installation art. Uh, here's another drawing from it. And um, yeah, and this is sort of what I realized was that it wasn't really, like I don't actually think this was an awful comic, and it, it might have been worth finishing, but um, I just realized I should stop plotting things out in advance, and it changed the way I, I wrote after this. And I, that's when I started um, the series of strips that ended up becoming uh, Ant Colony and uh, another serial that I do uh, called Kid Mafia, which isn't finished yet. And um, yeah, I just realized like when you work on a long-form project, you're stuck with these ideas that maybe were interesting or important to you a year or two ago, and it's not like those things might not still be worth exploring, but 
for me, I, my focus would just scatter somewhere else. Um, and I needed to stop having a script, basically. So um, with Ant Colony and Kid Mafia, I started, I tried to come up with premises where I could take them into any kind of detour and veer off into any direction I would like. Um, so I, I now this is, uh, this is the way I write now, where I, I improvise each page and I, I script it out in the morning, and then draw it and try to never script out more than that one page I'm about to draw over the next day or two. Um, so yeah, this is just more stuff I threw out, um, and this is just a page from what is going to be lose number six, where uh, even though I throw out ideas, I try to recycle them, or I, I not try to, but I end up recycling them a lot. And um, yeah, it's it, it, this is a comic that's more about just a working relationship between two friends rather than two artists. But um, I still uh, elements from the tossed pages have sort of reappeared in this story that is uh, not finished yet. Um, so this is a yeah, this is a gag comic I did, an ageist gag comic. Um, <laughs> Frank Santoro used to run a weekly column on the Comics Journal website, um, and uh, he, or it still it still exists, but it's not weekly anymore. But he wanted me to do a sort of like a Sunday's funny gag strip for it, so I tried. I think maybe a dozen of them. This is another one where there isn't really even a joke, but there's like a there's like a penis in it, which is apparently what passes for you know, some and. Um, yeah, so I worked on this for a while, and then it just sort of realized it wasn't my thing and opted out of it. Um, uh, I tried to make each gag kind of like a real, you know, classic one-panel gag, and then um, make each one self-contained. But then clearly towards the end of it, I just totally abandoned any sense of that. Like this ran over the course of four weeks and it was like, oh, it's no longer self-contained and there are no longer even jokes or punchlines to it. Um, but I included these because even though it's sort of like a failed experiment, um, I was working on, it would sort of be like Frank would email me on like a Friday night or a Saturday morning and be like, hey, can you draw this up really quick? And uh, I would do it in maybe an hour or two. And I, it forced me to really minimize um, the amount of detail I put in my work and have a lot, develop just a cartoon shorthand that I still use now. Um, so it became a useful experiment in that it made me, uh, yeah, it just affected the way I draw things. Uh, it, I think it made me a more efficient cartoonist to work on a deadline like that. Um, this is a panel from what was going to be the main, or a page from what was going to be the main story in Lose Number Four. Um, this was a comic that took place in northern Ontario, uh, where a lot of my family grew up, and um, or I guess half of my family grew up, and uh, it was about, it was like a body horror comic, but the central relationship in it was between um, a girl in junior high and a slightly older boy she had a crush on. And uh, yeah, the idea was that there was like, while this was all happening, there was a disease or just something where these berries would grow on different animals, but it made them look like they have kind of googly cartoon eyes. Um, I gave this one up. Uh, I was visiting my friend uh, Ryan in San Francisco a few years ago, and this thing happened where he needed to like 
do some work or something. He just, he needed me to like, get the fuck off his couch for like a little bit. He's like, I have to work, get out of my house. And um, I went to a coffee shop and I had my laptop with me and I was looking at all these pages that I had drawn. And I'd maybe gotten 15 or 20 pages into the story. And uh, as I looked through each page, I just found myself deleting each one as I went. And then like 20 minutes had passed and I was like, oh, I have to draw a new comic. And um, what's ended up happening now is that this has been the process for every issue of Loose. It's happened for issues three, four, five, and currently six, where I give myself like six or eight months to draw it. And I think I'll be like really ahead, um, ahead of the deadline and I won't have any trouble at all. And then uh, a month or two before it's due, I end up throwing out everything and doing everything in this mad rush. And I'm actually in the middle of one of these deadline crunches right now. Um, as soon as I get back to Toronto, I have to like draw two pages a day and like really kind of hammer something out. And I had the exact same thing last year. And it's at a point where I just sort of take it into account for stories in that series in particular, where I just know I have to write them with a lot of, um, I think it just gives them a sense of urgency and forces me to improvise a lot. And um, I'm starting to, you know, I, I think I benefit from writing that way, but I also realize there are a lot of limitations to writing that way. Uh, my writing is very meandering. Um, it doesn't really have a lot of, it always finds its focus as it goes, but uh, I can't explore things the way other writers that I admire do who have a very deep focus. And even just like on basic sort of, like I'm never going to write like a ripping detective yarn or something doing it this way. Um, but it just is the way I work now and I try to just be okay with it that I have to work with this uh, sense of urgency all the time. Um, and I still recycled issues from, uh, aspects from that comic in what became uh, a short story in that issue. Uh, I clearly took the same setting and character design and um, a sort of a loose body horror idea through it. And uh, this was a story about a small town that um, th uh, all the residents and all the animals in the town had the same face of this girl who was alive in the 60s. And, um, and the central relationship from the scrap story about the young girl in love with the slightly older boy um, turned into what became the lead story of Lose Number Five. So it, I still use stuff uh, from it. And uh, yeah, this is just more stuff I threw out. And like, it seems kind of like I might be building up to a point at the beginning of the slideshow, and then I don't. So I'm just gonna <laughs> show images. Um, this was another. Uh, this is another attempt at doing a comic called The Seed Stirs. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, the post-apocalyptic thing I mentioned, like uh, at the beginning of the thing, was called The Seed Stirs. I sort of feel like that title's cursed now um, because there, there's this, It's been the third project I've called The Seed Stirs, and I keep wanting to use it. And then it, like, I, it's a phrase stolen from an issue of 2001 that Jack Kirby wrote, and um, yeah. But now it's just cursed or something. And this one. I took a break on because um, I thought I'd maybe come back to it. I, I, I like aspects of this story, um, but I took a break on because it takes place in Miami and a comic I'm doing right now also takes place in Miami. And I feel like if I do two comics that take place in Miami, I like get set aflame or something, <laughs> like fall into a manhole. and. Um, also, my friend Michaela Zakili draws a lot of these scribbly water effects, 
and when I showed her these pages, she's like, yo, you're, you can't do that. Uh, <laughs> so now I just feel really self-conscious because I was like a big part of the way I was drawing these pages. Um, but like, I give Mickey food and stuff, so I don't know. And um, this is from, these are pages from the most recent comic I've thrown out. Uh, like, like a month, this is like why I'm in the middle of a deadline crunch. Um, these, so these are two pages from what were going to be the most recent issue of Lose Number Six, and it was about 20 pages worth of material I tossed for it. So this story was about, um, I was trying to write a little bit about uh, growing up with mental illness, and um, or mental illness in your family. Um, in this comic, it had, uh, there's like a dad who grows his hair out and then the hair takes up the whole couch. And, um, but the thing I took away from this comic was that I found a really good way to draw a baby, like right here. So I threw everything out, but I feel like, oh cool, like I now know how to draw a baby pretty well. Um, this is just another page from it. Um, and some more, it's like the dad in anguish. I guess there's like a close-up of that baby. Um, then over here, I guess I could have arranged the slides in order, which would have been like a good thing to do. And um, so this was some uh, from a comic that I drew with uh, Michaela Zakili again and uh, Patrick Kyle, who I uh, the two of which I, I collaborate with a lot. And we do a series of comics that are like kind of like blank comics number one. So we do like cop comics number one and car or. Basketball Comics, number one, and Rain Comics. So this one was Pixar's Cars Comics, number one. Like the universal literary theme of Pixar's Cars. And um, I'm just including this because it was an example of something where I, I drew this comic five times, or four times, before I wound up with one that I liked and saw print. This is one of the rejects. And um, I had to throw it out because it felt too personal, which I just thought was a funny thing that the Pixar's Cars comic like felt too personal to like draw in a comic. Like an ex-girlfriend would see it and get upset or something. Um, and uh, yeah, this is just to close it. This is just some, the, what was going to be the lead story for the new issue that I had to throw out. And it was about um, a grieving mother uh, whose son uh, dies and um, she goes on a road trip with her son's former lover, uh, who is an older coworker. But um, uh, it also had this gang in it that wore plastic bags or, or interesting bags over their heads. I thought they'd be called like the interesting bag gang. So like one would have like a popcorn bag and like a I don't know assorted. Yeah. So that's it. And uh, sorry. And yeah. Sorry. And, yeah. <laughs> a short question and answer period. It's a, a true rari rarity to have these artists here, you know? So um, uh, if, you, if there's a question you've always wanted to ask, feel free. Um, and uh, we'll begin the signing. Are there any questions? I have a question. We'll go over here. You go first. You go first. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, uh, when did you really feel like you found your style as an artist? When did you feel like you found your style as an artist, Michael? Um, I sort of, I like switching up my styles a lot. I, I try to intentionally draw each comic a little differently. Um, and some of that's just due to also like the lack of focus I mentioned. Um, where I get bored drawing one thing a certain way, uh, 
or like using color over and over or having a super minimal or a super detailed style. So I like to think that it's changing a lot and like I, I sort of realize that to me it's only changing and everyone else is like, oh, like this guy's just drawing the same thing over and over. But um, uh, I try to intention, so I don't know if I ever found it and I like, I hope that it's constantly changing. Like I just want to feel like I'm pushing myself. Are there words in the scribbly water? There are words in the scribbly water. <laughs> you, I feel like I might have, but I don't actually remember. It's been a while since I did those. What words did you see? <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> Yeah, so she, uh, she asked about sort of um, book design. Um, book design is definitely something that I think about. Um, sort of as an artist, I think of myself as a book maker as much or more than I do a cartoonist sometimes. Um, and then particularly why the accordion book uh, format for that. Um, and the truth is there's not a really good reason. Um, the when I originally did that collection or started with those few stories, it, as I mentioned before, it was uh, intended as a slide reading. So <clears throat> the the images were put together with the idea that each one was going to be like this big sort of almost monumental or like kind of iconic single image. And when I decided to make a book out of it. For some reason, it just felt like, you know, they were going to obviously going to get reduced. Um, and then to have two of them, one next to the other, sort of like commenting on each other or like, you know, competing or whatever, um, it just felt like that, that wasn't quite right somehow. Um, and I sort of just wanted to try something different. I wanted to try an accordion book. And in a way, I sort of felt like, okay, the accordion book, you know, it's this one single long piece of paper that's like 50 feet long. So there's a way in which that the book then becomes this sort of like iconic, like um, monumental object. Um, but yeah, there's a way in which it doesn't really actually use the, the length of the paper in a particularly interesting way. I'm actually working on a, um, another accordion thing that I might try to self-publish later this year uh, that is actually a continuous landscape where there's a story that sort of unfolds through the, the landscape. So it's, a, it's totally an interesting form that I want to return to. Um, what originally inspired you to write mythological figures in today's modern time? I'm all, all interested in you how know, people get inspired. Um, I mean, w one answer is that, like, I, I was just a huge fan of those stories when I was a kid, um, and so they're sort of just in my brain, like, they sort of, they end up in my other stories, whether I mean to put them there or not. Um, in a couple cases, there are very particular 
reasons. So like that first story, the Poseidon story, um, I was in fact on a camping trip in Wisconsin with some friends and in uh, the Wisconsin Dells, which anybody who is from the Midwest may know is this kind of odd amusement park town um, in rural Wisconsin. Like totally weird, crazy place. Um, and we were, you know, we had just gotten some coffee, so I was drinking a latte and uh, looked up, and there was this thing called Rage of Poseidon Water Park. And because, like, I, 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 you know, I have these stories in my head, and I'm always sort of thinking about ideas for narratives or whatever. Right away, I just sort of thought, like, oh, that's weird. Like, what would he think of that? Like, what, like, and then that it's like that produces questions that you then have to answer. It's like, well, why would he be here? You know, like, how would, you know. You, you just answer these series of questions that present themselves and all of a sudden you've got a story. Michael, when you're done with the story, do you find yourself drawing the characters again or do you try to move on to like a new set of characters? Uh, uh, so far I try to move on. Like, um, yeah, if I'm done, I, I haven't ruled out the idea of like coming back to anything, but usually I'm like sick of it enough that uh, like for for Ant Colony, for instance, if I come back to it, it'd probably be like many years from now because I got really sick of drawing ants by the end of it. <laughs> yep. What kind of pens do both of you guys use? Um, well, I uh, <laughs> I now ink digitally, um, so I draw differently in my sketchbook, of course, but. Um, yeah, so I, I usually ink off of scanned pencils. Um. I use uh, like Microns or just sort of disposable technical pens. I used to use uh, Rapidographs, and they're annoying because they always clog up when you're trying to draw, and they have a beautiful line, but I just kind of go for like the simplest, most straightforward kind of thing. You, you don't pencil, right? Uh, I pencil a little bit now, um, just to like place objects, but I didn't for a while, for a long time. Um, for both of you guys, um, when you're coming up with a story, do you begin with a character, or do you begin with like uh, maybe a story itself, like a situation? Like how do you guys, where do most of your stories come from? Oh, sure. <laughs> um, if it's a short story, it's usually some idea or like some theme that I kind of feel like I want to write about. Um, but for a long story, it will usually be a character that um, I have in mind that I know I could spend a lot of time with without uh, feeling awful about it. Um, pretty much everything I do starts in sketchbooks. Like I do, I keep I keep a sketchbook with me all the time, and I'm always sort of playing around with ideas and, you know, sketching stuff in the real world or whatever. Um, and so, like, like almost everything in this book, you know, started as just, like, a little thought experiment, like, um, you know, uh, yeah, sort of just entertaining myself. And then sometimes those little things sort of catch something and, and make me want to continue them. Questions for Michael. Uh, I was gonna uh, ask you. So, what do you come? Up, how do you create a world? Is it the world first or the character? Like, what's the process? 
Oh, uh, if I create the world first or the character for world building? Um, yeah, I usually just let the world building stuff just come as I write. Um, yeah, I don't, it just, it's just sort of a, yeah, I just let it happen. I don't like plot anything out very intricately like that. Like, um, there are a few cases where I might have an idea like, for Ant Colony, like, oh, yeah, I'd sort of have this idea like, um, about the magnifying glass showing up in the middle of it. Um, I mean, it's a spoiler. There's a magnifying glass in it. And um, <laughs> there'll like, be a few things like that. Like, I want, like, oh, or I want to introduce bumblebees or something. But um, yeah, I tend to just let that happen when I it was like, oh, I need to have, show the edges of this part of the world. And like, that'll come up when it, when it comes up, kind of. So it's more, for that in particular, is more just like where the characters wound up. sort of think of it as different processes or different I didn't drop out of college for the same reasons that I <laughs> throw out my comics but sure you know there's plenty of stuff I've given up on and quit jobs and relationships and all sorts of things but um I like to think yeah yeah <laughs> I like to think they're different but maybe they're not maybe I have a problem I don't know. <laughs> If you could stay after and talk to him for a while about it. <laughs> I think we could all help be helped. Um, oh, research. So, yeah, so anybody who really knows mythology will uh, know that I get the stories wrong a little bit. Um, which is partly what I love about working with the, those stories is that they, like, the original authors kind of get them wrong. It's like, um, you know, if you go back and read each of the four gospels in the Bible, like they don't tell the same story. Um, so I sort of, I sort of like being part of the tradition of just, just kind of making it up the best way you remember. Or a lot. It's like so. Then when I do, so then often, like I'll do a story sort of to the best, like the best of my memory, and then my interest will get peaked and I'll go, you know, look up, like, so what, what, like, what did Prometheus, you know, what did he do exactly and who was he dealing with and whatever. And different, you know, different authors have very different takes. Um, and then it's like through history too. It's like, you know, who Prometheus was to the ancient Greeks was very different to who he was in the Romantic period and, you know, um, so yeah, so mostly I kind of don't really do research at first, but then, I mean, some of these stories, like I am actually now, there's a Prometheus story in the book and I'm working on a um, Prometheus like story as a comic, as a sort of graphic novel. Um, so I have done much more research and then it's just like, oh my God, there's so many more possibilities like that are suggested by, by the historical story and the possibilities of tweaking it and bringing it into the real world. One last question? Yeah. Uh, 
Uh, who would win in a fight, Jesus or Hercules? I'm go definitely going with Jesus. Because he rules the universe. I mean, it's like, yeah, hands down. All right, all right. So we're going to do this. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.